0: Well, it's uh, week 13 of our Art of Living series. We have one more week left. This is the next to the last week. I don't know if you're still reading this book, um, but for those of you that are, you know that we're uh, dabbling in Nehemiah this last week. And I was reading in Nehemiah while I was um, on spring break. We're just gonna land on a piece in Nehemiah's story uh, that um, we're just gonna look at here today. Um, I was on my way home from spring break, and um, I had just read the book of Nehemiah in the days prior, and I was listening to a podcast on on courage and bravery, and the speaker was just talking about that and personal responsibility, which was interesting, because that's kind of what I want to touch on today, is the art of taking responsibility in the midst of resistance. And so I've I've been really thinking about personal responsibility uh, in a world where we're just hearing all the time about our rights. Everybody, what's your right and and what is owed to you and what do you deserve? Not even based on the virtue of what you've done, you just deserve something for doing nothing even, to some degree. And we're just in incessant conversations about our rights and the violation of our rights, which some of those are really, really good. And we need to be looking at our constitution. We need to be looking at the word of God and and we need to understand what it is to be humane to each other. But I feel like we are just drunk on hearing about our rights and nobody's talking about our responsibility. Responsibility is way different because you can't shift blame, you can't fake like you're living under someone else's oppression all the time, you can't play the victimization card all the time. God throughout the scriptures calls people and he says I want you to take the onus of responsibility and I want you to step up and I specifically want you to do that when life is hard. And when life is hard and you're getting criticized and there's opposition and there's resistance as there inevitably will be in your life and in my life. What are you gonna do when that happens? Are you gonna look for a fall guy? Are you, are you gonna look for some sort of scapegoat? Are you gonna look for somebody to, to, to blame and to point fingers at? Her? But are you gonna look at yourself and say, is there anything I can do to change myself to change the world around me? Or are you just gonna expect someone else to do it for you? This is the difference between a rights conversation and a responsibility conversation. It's interesting, I was worshiping next to my daughter, and she's here by herself. The rest of our family came last night. She was out with a bunch of uh, her friends. And uh, we, I sent her a text, per, pretty much her, because a couple weeks ago, she was just starting her soccer season and um, was practicing before a game at East, and she tore her ACL, and this is her senior year. And she's got a great heart, she loves the Lord, she worships Jesus in the shower, loudly, uh, in the morning. She um, has a heart for people, and there's just a part of me as a dad where I just am like, man, I feel for my daughter, and, and I was hearing that night, and I hope you don't mind me opening up the closet with your skeletons, because I like to do that, not just my own, but um, I was hearing on that, first day or first night, some of these responses of just like, this really sucks. Anybody say sucks around here? Yeah, so I might as well use the Latin Vulgate, the vernacular of the people. This just really sucks. That's my senior year. And you know how you can kind of just be like, man, this is hard and it's not fair and I'm gonna miss the rest of the, I was just kind of hearing the belly aching, you know, and I I didn't blame her. I have deep compassion for her. But there's something that hit me and I, I sent out a text to her and I said, you know, I think when you go through tests, I think that's when people really watch how you struggle and how you suffer is really whether they, they actually see whether you live what you believe. And your, your testimony actually is seen most in your tests. And I, I want to see my, my children go through hard things things that they didn't foresee, things that caught them off guard, and ready rather than just reacting to that, saying, God, I don't like this, I wouldn't wish this on anyone else, but what are you going to do to use this, and what does my posture need to be right now in the midst of this, and how could it be different from my daughter when someone asks her, you know, oh, that really sucks for her to be like, it does, and I feel bad about that, but you know, I have a really great life and there's so many things to be thankful for. And how could she be utilized and what could her platform be right now in the midst of this sort of resistance or obstacle or opposition for her to have a platform of influence right now? Maybe it's better than if she didn't have the obstacle or opposition. Just looking at things differently rather than, oh man, whose fault was it? And and, uh, man, life sucks and I'm just gonna be the victim here for the next several months. And my heart goes out to her but I don't want to I don't want to raise a snowflake. I don't want, I don't want to Wow, that got applause? Maybe parents are applausing next to their kids. I don't know. But I don't want to raise a softie. Because someday she's gonna get her butt kicked in the arena. She's just not gonna be able to sit there in the cheap seats and be like, oh yeah, you should have passed it to the wide receivers wide open. It's like, yeah, I'm in the. I'm in the pocket, and it's closing in at the, at the tune of 2.6 seconds. I can't see through the helmets what you see in the cheap seats. Unless you want to get down here and block and bleed, well, you can keep your thoughts to yourself. I'm going to tell you, you're going to get out there, Ellie, and you're going to get your butt kicked, and it's going to make the ACL seem like child's play. And I want, I want to, like, teach this responsibility rather than rights mentality. And and the problem is, is there's adult babysitting going on because adolescence is not shifting over into adulthood for a lot of us. And we're 32 and we're 42 and we're still hitting things and having these same vitriolic reactions of victimhood. And it's got to stop or we're never going to check the plague and actually have God through his Holy Spirit use us to change the world in the midst of our suffering and our struggle. So it's looking at this life of Nehemiah and just a person I really looked up to, he's a governor in Israel in a certain time in history where they were in exile in Babylon. And um, he comes to a moment in his life, which is like this like crisis point, this like pivotal moment where he's called it into action. And I was on this podcast talking about bravery and courage, and they made a reference to Albert Einstein and a quote that that just has sort of stuck with me since I heard it. It was this, the world is a dangerous place not because of those who do evil, but because of those who look on and do nothing. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, which is Edmund Burke, the only uh, thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing against this ambivalence that leads to inaction that leads to like, I hope somebody else does something. And we can all sit there and hope that somebody else does something rather than taking the risk to put our necks out there and some skin in the game and do something about the wrong that needs to be made right and to push back the darkness. And to do what it says in Romans 12, 21, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good, right? Right? I mean, I feel like on certain days, if I just go on default on my system preferences, I just get overwhelmed with evil. But we're supposed to overcome evil with good. And that's a mindset. That's a mindset. If to wake up in the morning, there's a mindset I have. I see each day as an invitation into responsibility and resistance. Four key factors seem to cry out for my voluntary involvement. And they're this. Chances with challenges and choices, and changes. And the way that I put it into a sentence is every day we all wake up with another chance to face a difficult challenge, to make a critical choice, to enact a necessary change. Every day you wake up with a chance to hit a challenge, to make a choice, to enact a change. That's the human existence in a nutshell because of the Garden of Eden. We're east of Eden and west of heaven, and this is the fat middle of the world we live in. And it happens at a macro level, you know, on occasion, but it happens on micro levels each and every day, less in obvious events and more in the, these unseen moments of our life. It reminds me of when we were on vacation in Myrtle Beach this last week, and we were out to eat, and the Holdridge family eats. Right? But when we eat, We talk, and we laugh, and we're loud. We're not Italian, but we're like Italians. We're just obnoxious, okay? And and so we go after eating with lots of laughter and mirth and merriment, and it's obnoxious. And then we've got our two sons, and they just run around the table um, while we're doing that. And Heidi noticed, and it was behind my back, there was this table with an African-American woman and her four kids. And so after our meal was done, I was getting ready to leave and I noticed my wife went over to that table and she was talking. And so I went over and I'm like, you can't do that without me, you know? So it's like, you can't meet strangers without me. And she doesn't usually do that. She's not like, I go walk up to strangers. I'm that guy. Like, give me a hug, you know? Who are you? Just somebody that wants to, you know, give you a hug. So, so I get over there and she's talking. Come to find out, this is a woman who's taking custody of these four kids. I can only imagine the backstory. And they're probably 14 all the way down to six. And one of the younger boys, he had just gotten out of the hospital after being there for four days. And I just remember her saying, it's just been such a crazy week. I just told the kids, we just gotta go out to eat and get around the same table together. You ever have those nights where it's like, it's just been chaos all week. Let's just go out to eat so we can get around the same table together. And you could just tell they were just worn out. And so we finished the conversation and 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 then we were leaving and we could have been five steps away from the table as we were leaving and my wife's like, I just feel like God wants us to pay for their meal. And again, we don't do this all the time just so that you're just not like, you're probably doing that all the time and then putting it on the church's bill. We we don't do that, okay? (laughs) That's not what we do. And I can tell you this because of what happened next. And I look back and the waitress is already there with the book open so we can't be anonymous and go over and let them know and then just leave. And so I'm like, that's kind of weird. And my wife, I turn around, I'm like, I don't think we can do it because, and she's already digging in her purse, coming out with a wad of cash. And I'm like, where did you get that? You know, like I never have, cash my wife has it all and um, so she pulls out a lot of cash and she just puts it on the table and I go over where the you know waitress was in the table and I just throw the cash on the table and oh, we want to pay for your meal you've had a hard week no 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 and it's like no we want to do this um, my wife is actually my wife's idea I said and um, we want to bless you guys and two of the the young boys was crazy crazy they just said thank you so much sir I'm telling you I walk away and the, the meaning and the substance of satisfaction and fulfillment, that this is what happens when you engage responsibility. It, it just does, and that's just the small things. Those are steps in conversations and paying for someone's meal. And some of you have great huge dreams, but some of you are just walking by opportunities to take responsibility every day. And it's where meaning and, and a life of consequence is found, I'm telling you. And some of you feel a vacuum and a void of meaning in your life, and that's why you're in church today. And I want you to know it doesn't come because you come to church. That's just too easy. You can be a bystander in church. You can sit there and just kind of hover on that plastic chair, and you can take it in and just be another consumer of more consuming things to take in. Life will give you what you give it and what you give out. But I can assure you, the minute you take a step and make a slow and steady sort of progress to take your responsibility to a new level, I'm telling you that you will encounter the resistance of a new devil. It's like a new level, a new devil. And the devil is always looking for moving targets. He's looking for beating hearts that are living on the bleeding edge of life. And the minute he sees you move to make a difference, he will target you. He will. The devil doesn't even care if you follow God as long as you don't follow through. I was thinking about this throughout the day. Like I think he enjoys watching Christians say, I'm gonna follow God, but I'm never gonna follow through. I'm never gonna be obedient. I'm never gonna complete what God has asked me to do. And so you can start a whole lot of things and I think the enemy's like loves people to start things. He doesn't give a rip if you start things as long as you never finish them. But it takes more than just compassion or care or charisma. It, it actually does take courage. Because there's some risk, some risk of rejection, misinterpretation. There there's the risk of the unknown, the risk of failure, anytime you wanna to dare to do something greatly, even on a macro or micro level, you're, you're, you're gonna feel like a lump in your throat and you're gonna feel butterflies in your stomach and something's gonna paralyze you. I'm telling you, you gotta break through that. It takes courage. I was thinking about the word courage and responsibility. It made me think of the Rocky movie, not the one from way back in the 80s, but like the one that came out 10 years ago. There's a conversation that Rocky was having with his son when his son was, had, had all these experiences Excuses of victimization. And then Rocky said this to him. Check this out. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. And I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, then go out and get what you're worth. But you gotta be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying, you ain't where you wanna be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that. That's the word of the prophet Rocky Balboa right there. That's what cowards do, and you're not a coward. I thought of that word coward, and it brought me to one of the most bone-chilling verses in the Bible in my mind, which is Revelation. A lot of you don't like to read Revelation, but it's the final day, which is way bigger deal than the final four, (laughs) even though it doesn't feel like it right now. There's the final day you're going to step before God. And in chapter 21, verse 8, it says this. But the cowards, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice the magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. Aren't you glad you came to church today? I'm glad you came to church today because I think a lot of us are like, yeah, practicing the magic arts. Murderers totally get that one. It's weird that it's bookended with liars and cowards because I don't think these are two things that we think belong in this list. And it really is amazing that this list is started with cowards. This isn't just a personality trait. Oh, I'm shy, I'm an introvert. This is not about that. This is about people where God tells them, I need you to do this. If you want to follow me and you want to follow the beat of my heart and you want to bleed with me, and you want your heart to break with me, I need you to get out of your seat, and I need you to follow and take personal responsibility and incarnate Jesus on this planet. And if you're like, oh, I don't know, man. I don't know about that. I mean, I could take some hits. I could get hurt. I don't know. I, 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 the risk is what comes to my mind Then anytime you want to do something and step out, I plan on somebody in the peanut gallery just kind of making some sort of snide remarks. If you do nothing, nobody will bother you, including the devil. And I think, man, cowards, this is a big deal. I don't want you to get to the judgment seat of Christ and be like, "I didn't know that was on the list. I want you to be like, oh, oh, I remember my pastor said something about being a coward, that he's given me talents, and I just can't take the talent out of fear and bury it under the porch that I gotta go out and invest it because I want to make my life mean something and be consequential and substantial for the future. We all have these opportunities. So I wanted to talk about. This bone-chilling idea of taking responsibility in the midst of resistance. And I was going to just talk on Nehemiah chapter six, but I'm like, man, one through five kind of gives the backstory of what leads to chapter six in this great project that he was called to. And believe me, there's no automatic or accidental, you know, responsible risk takers out there. Like if you want to live this kind of life, these are the small steps that a person needs to take to live this kind of life. I call them the vital and violent steps of attempting change, um, to change something that's wrong and to make it better or good. We're gonna read some scripture in Nehemiah and I'm just gonna pull out some of these vital and violent, violent steps here today. Chapter one, verse one, we follow the story in Nehemiah is writing this. He says, the the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeli, in the month of Keslev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they're great trouble and disgrace, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now if I'm Nehemiah and this is after 70 years of being in exile and I look at my brother Hanani and he comes to me and says everything going wrong over here. I'm in the citadel of Susa. I've got a penthouse in the palace of King Artaxerxes. I've worked my way up. That's not my problem. It's none of my business. I have a great life and this is where the first step begins I don't care whether you got a bad life or a good life. The first step is don't let your own little world inoculate you from seeing the things, begging for attention in the world around you. And it's very easy. Just because it's going good for you doesn't mean it's going good for everyone. And just because it's going bad for you doesn't mean in your badness you can't reach out to somebody else who has it pretty bad. Our bad world and our good world can keep us pretty blinded to the invitation of God to actually change the world. In small ways. Remember, my mom had a quote in the house in one of the frames, and it was by Edward Everett. It said, I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but I, st- I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. I think my mom was trying to teach me not to be a snowflake as I read it every day of my childhood. Do the one thing you can do and don't be paralyzed by trying to do everything. And I've said this before, the people who try to do everything end up doing nothing instead of something. Goes on in Nehemiah 1, and he heard about the condition from his brother of his people and his ancestors, and said, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I love people that let things affect them. They they, they get hit with it and then they sit with it and then it breaks them. The second vital and violent step is let something that is really wrong deeply bother you without figuring out ways to cleverly dismiss it. Bill Hybels calls this the holy discontent, just allowing God to give you a holy discontent where something's here and it should be there and it's like, are you gonna do something about that? And I just firmly believe all of us created in the image of God that there's a still small voice speaking into us and if our antennas are up, like we hear that that signal that sends off a siren and you can just hit snooze day after day after day until you die. And you just gotta make a decision, I'm not hitting snooze anymore. I'm not gonna bide my time down here, just hold my breath waiting for the rapture, like I wanna do something with my time. How many of you just keep hitting snooze on the thing he's calling you to do and just rather than saying, God, I feel that stirring. I feel that. It's a little scary. God's like, it's okay. Let it hit you. Let it bother you. Let it affect you. It goes on in Nehemiah 2 and he goes into the courtroom of the king and here's where it gets real. In the month of Nisan... In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king because he was a cupbearer to the king, the most trusted person of the king because you're the one who can either poison the wine right after you get it and kill the king or you're gonna drink the wine so the king isn't killed and you're killed. That person is the most trusted in the whole kingdom. He has this trusted privileged position and he goes and gives it to the king, and he said, I had not been sad in his presence before, and that's a big deal. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid, as he should have been, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried is lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it that you want? And he went on and said, this is what I want, what I really, really want, right here, this is him. (laughs) Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. The third step is take the risk to tell somebody about what you wanna see and make happen. To me, this is where responsibility actually gets traction through accountability, because once you utter it out loud, You can't have this secret thing that nobody knows whether you're doing it or not doing it. But the minute you tell somebody what you want to do, now you're accountable and responsible. But it was a bigger deal and a bigger risk and why he was afraid in this passage. And the reason he said I'd never been sad in his presence before is because nobody came in the courts of a king in that day. I didn't care who you were and you were sad bringing a burden with you. The king wasn't like interested in taking on more burdens. Whoever came into the courts of the king, they were never sad in his presence. And two things would happen to you if you were sad or brought burdens to the presence of the king. The best scenario is you get excommunicated from your position. The worst case scenario is you just on the spot get executed. So it's a big deal for him to let his effect to be shown to the king that there was a cause that was leading to this effect. And he told the king, and he took the risk, and he took—he stuck his neck out, and he's like, "If I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, wanting this to happen." Esther had to do the same exact thing. Another movie that came to my mind when it came to sort of courage and taking risk is uh, *We Bought a Zoo*. Anybody else like that movie? I'm. Into that movie, and one of my favorite quotes is, you know, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage, just literally 20 seconds of just embarrassing bravery, and I promise you something great will come of it. I think people are under the misnomer that I um that I just like to make people feel uncomfortable. I don't. Like I I've been told that, you're just, you're so good, you just get up in people's grills and you just have no fear and you just speak it like it is and you ask people questions, and you make them uncomfortable and you know what? Most of the time, I don't wanna do that. I just like swallow hard and just say it. I just ask the question, and I'm like, this could lead to a disaster, a dumpster fire, but this could actually change their life. And you know, what? 90% of the time, when I just come into a situation, I swallow hard, I just do it afraid and I ask the question and I engage the situation and I intervene, not because I want to, but because I feel called to and I just like say, just give me 10 seconds of courage. And it's amazing, like 90% of the time, it's that spanning that gap just brings about just the good stuff in life. And Nehemiah 2 it goes on, and then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It turned out it was 12 years, and it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time, and I also send him, if, said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters from you to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, so that they'll provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah, And and may, one more thing, may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he'll give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy, and because of the gracious hand of my God that was on me, the king granted my requests. I think it's awesome to have a strength of feelings, but you've got to have a strategy of action. So what's beautiful in this story is not just strength of feeling. A lot of us feel passionate about a lot of stuff, and But I think God's like, I love your passion, where are your plans? Because the plans are really, really important. Strength of feeling doesn't get the ball down the field. It's not what brings the kingdom of heaven to earth as Jesus prayed, I can tell you that. The fourth step is make preparations of how you will, not just want to make something better. Pointing out problems is easy, but putting together plans, that's another story altogether. So when you have something in your mind you wanna do, and I don't care if it's to even better your marriage, start writing out some plans of what you see that needs to take place. And then take that risk to put your neck out and just say, I just don't feel great about where we're at, or this is why I've been sad, or this is what I long for in our family. And you're like, well, that's kind of a micro thing, but I'm telling you, it all starts in the marriage. It all starts in the home, it starts in the family. I mean, we hear the, you know, the church is the hope of the world, but the family's the hope of the church. And if we can change things at the home front, I'm telling you, the battlefront that we're on to push back the darkness, like it won't prevail against the church. Nehemiah 2 goes on and sees, actually set out and went to Jerusalem after staying there three days. I set out during the night with a few others and hadn't told anyone what God put in my heart to do in Jerusalem. Then I said to these dudes, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, the gates have been burned, let's come rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. And I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me and they replied, let's start building. So they began this good work that John talked about a couple weeks ago. The fifth point is pull in like-minded hearts to yoke together with you and working to pull off the crazy cause that God puts in your heart. Like I, just, I have to do things with people. And you'll notice in the scriptures when God called the disciples, he sent them out two by two. Every missionary journey in the book of Acts, two by two. You gotta pull together other people in order for you, when you're down, they're up. And when they're down, you're up. This is the beauty of community and the immunity of community. Really, community is somewhat of an immunity for me. There's days where I would give up if it wasn't for the guys that were just around me. And it's like, man, I'm gonna stay in it for you like you're staying in it for me. In chapter four, they hit the resistance of three guys that came against them. When Sam Ballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed and he ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer their sacrifices? Will they finish the wall in a day? Which is stupid, that's not what their point was in the beginning, but he's just ridiculing them. Can they bring these stones back to life from these heaps of rubble, burned as they are? And then Tobiah kinda comes in, the Ammonite, who's at his side, and they say, what are they building? Even if a fox climbed up on it, it would break down their wall of stones. Here's the resistance. And the next point, get ready to encounter the firing squad of changed challengers. Anything of value gets harshly evaluated and anything that's critical gets mercilessly critiqued. This is just something I've had to learn with time. That anything that I've set out to do to move um, as God is moving, there's a joy in the dream, there's a a beauty, there's a glory in it, there's a euphoria, there's, there's... There's all the things that come with the adrenaline of being a tornado chaser, and I love having a vision and chasing after the vision, but I'm telling you, I have underestimated, and I did when I was younger, the amount of resistance that comes when you're attempting to do something, even good, let alone great. That's maybe why Albert Einstein said this next quote, great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. Because I think mediocrity hates when people actually start uh, changing the curve by doing something with their life. So Nehemiah hears all these things and he sees the hearts of the people sort of waning and, and their hearts draining And in Nehemiah 4, I love this, verse 14, he said, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who's great and awesome. I hear William Wallace in my head. And fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord, who's great and awesome. And the point that hits me here, and I've noticed I've had to do this, whatever the grandiose vision is, that oftentimes the vision, even I'll take the building for an example that's been three to four years in the making, that starts to just sort of fade away and become obscure and nebulous in people's minds. And, and, and that mission doesn't hold people's attention once they face resistance or struggle or strain or strife in their life or tribulation or temptation or trials. It starts to break a man and a woman. And you look around you and your family's sort of turning into rubble while you're trying to reconstruct the rubble, and it's hard to remember the mission. And people are like, what's the mission? Oh, the mission's to rebuild the wall. Nope, no, no, that's not the mission. That's not the mission. That was the mission, but that's not going to hold your attention. Oh, I know. I know why we're doing this. We're doing this because the king sent letters to the governors of the Euphrates to give us safe passage. Nope, that's not why we're doing it. Oh, I know because Asaph, the keeper of the timbers, gave us... No, that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because God is great and awesome. And the second thing, with that vertical kind of perspective doesn't, like, grab your attention, I want you to look around you, and there around you are the reasons why we're doing it, and it's we're fighting for our brothers, our families, our sons and our daughters, our wives and our homes. I, I can tell you right now that there are days where I don't cross lines of temptation that are really dangerous like things that I've set up standards in my life not to cross. And it isn't because of my relationship and fearing to displease God. It isn't my fear of God that causes me not to cross that line and to put my ministry and my family in jeopardy. I can tell you what it is most of the time. It's looking eyeball to eyeball with my wife. And it's looking eyeball to eyeball with my daughter or my daughters, or my sons, or thinking about my mom and dad who have fought this far to hold our family together and leave me a heritage and pass on the baton so I can pass it to the next generation. And when I forget my mission, all of a sudden I hear, don't forget about the Lord who's great and awesome, but don't forget about your family, your sons and your daughters, your wives and the homes. The reason why we're doing this is for our family. I put it this way, go back to your first impulse and then come up with a better, more relatable mission statement that drives you and everyone else more viscerally and personally. I hope I can keep doing this in this church. That it doesn't just become pie in the sky, a bunch of holy rollers that are just like, you know, so, so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. That is not the kind of church that I want to lead. And if ever it sort of separates from the humane humanity of it all, then we're losing touch with God because God loves people more than anything. Nehemiah 5, it goes on. And in the midst of trying to build and the project and the mission, people were sort of being left behind. It says, men and their wives raised this great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain and for some reason there had already been a pecking order that had already established itself, which is what happens with people, these weird hierarchies of people and some people get left out and they're eating the scraps and other people are sort of high on the hog and within the people group, within the tribe, some people were kicked to the curb and Nehemiah heard the outcry of the people. And this is so critical when you're doing some great cause and some great project that you don't lose sight of the people. A vital and violent step is don't run over people to achieve the necessary mission. You don't have to choose between caring deeply or caring deeply and daring greatly. The project can never eclipse the people. And I'm telling you, it does. Some of you in your minds, you have this great, Idea and these great dreams and you're pursuing them and you're obsessed and and obsessive compulsive and you're actually, you can easily run over people going after a necessary thing. And I love that Nehemiah had ears in the midst of a great and necessary project to hear the outcry of the people and to come to their aid. You know what he did? He invited them to his house where the best of meats and the finest of wines were. He invited uh, like hundreds of them to sit around his table to feast with him at at the governor's house. That's a good leader. That's an awesome leader. Not like, oh, I'm gonna go hand out, you know, um, Chick-fil-A to-go baskets to everybody and you stay out there on the periphery. It's like, come to my house be taken care of, I want you to eat like a king. The project never eclipses the people. That's something I gotta keep telling myself all the time. It's about the people, it's about the people. It's not the programs, it's not the budget, it's not the buildings, it's the people. It's the people. The church isn't the building, it's the people. The church isn't the programs, it's the people. This isn't just Lol, These are people. A community filled with people. Do you hear the outcry of the people? And then the second wave of accusation came in. And then the word came to Sambalat Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of the enemies that I rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time, I would not set the doors and the gates. And Sambal and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono which is a great place to have meetings. Every meeting takes place in Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Because I already know what you scoundrels are all about. And four times they sent me the same exact email, and each time I sent them a reply email, right? I'm not coming down, stopping the project to try to convince people that are are already not listening to logic or reason. You're the resistance. I cannot allow that boundary to be crossed because something is more important. To me, I I think about this step. When disparagement doesn't work, ready yourself to be attacked with distraction. How much meaning has been lost to just one more meeting? Maybe this one's just for me. There's a book called Death by Meetings where you can literally meeting yourself to death. And you can have so many meetings that you never do what you're talking about. More committees. I love that committees is a group of vultures. That's what they are, a committee of vultures, like a flock of geese. Because that's what I think it is sometimes in committees, just meetings and conversations. Nehemiah 6, it goes on. And then the fifth time, Sambel said his aid to me with the same message in his hand was unsealed letter and it was written. It is reported among the nations and Geshem says it's true since he's such a reliable source that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king. Not just their governor with his project and he even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in jerusalem there's a king in judah now this report will get back to the king king artaxerxes and so come let's meet together this is this is fake news before there was fake news right (laughs) This is unreliable sources, uncorroborated evidence and Geshem says it's true and you've got op-eds that are out there and where did this come from, anonymous sources and it's all a bunch of stuff that wasn't true, it wasn't real. And I thought, this happens a lot. The violent and vital step, brace yourself for character assassination the closer you get to the finish line. Mischaracterization often scares a good person into immobilization. When you feel misunderstood, that, that is a hard feeling. It'll stop you dead in your tracks. It made me think of a piece of poetry I wrote a couple weeks ago, and I was just, I felt permission based on the imprecatory, imprecatory Psalms that David just was like, these men lie in wait for me and they're bloodthirsty men. And I'm like, there's just, I, there was one day within an hour I, I heard of two people that were saying things about me and about something that I was doing, and both of the things were just not true. And I was just angry. Sometimes I can let that just go off my back, but sometimes, man, it's just like a dagger to the heart, especially when there's certain people that you thought they had your back. And I got up with God one morning, I wrote this piece of poetry, like probably all of you do uh, on Monday morning. (laughs) Said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about, or so they say, whoever they are. But gossip can make a man go underground, find the height of the radar and figure out how to fly beneath it. The acid wash of hearsay, the sandblasting of slander, the gangrene of the grapevine, the poison of prattle, the injury of idle talk, the toll on the soul of fighting, this straw man is ineffable. Fending and defending the bastion of one's integrity and dignity from the babbling bandits who would strip you blind and naked, though they call it conversation, innocent chit-chat. But the back fence chatter, the small talk makes huge headlines, the scuttlebutt guys at storytelling, this airing of dirty laundry makes a person feel like they're dirty linen and it's dirty. Whispering campaigns, subcultures of special interest groups lobbying for their very life with yours, telling tales like mother goose, cooking any goose and every gander and whatever else fits into the cauldron, a blathering stew as they stew over you. How does one steel themselves against the onslaught of secret slaughter? How does one keep a soft heart while developing thick skin? How does one maintain a love for people when their affections be so fickle? How did Jesus do it? That's just me. It's just one of those days. Hearing the reports. Nehemiah 6, it goes on. After he heard these reports, Nehemiah sent him this reply, nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. Right. That's in the Bible. They did that back then too. It's a great verse to bring up in you know, a fight with your spouse. Like, it, like Jason said, you're making it up in your head. That's not even happening. The word of God has spoken. This step is face and fight the head games that seek to blur your motives and sap your motivation. Constantly name what's make-believe in your mind and in others. We've gotta attack make-believe. We gotta attack what's just going on in the head games of life. I think um, it was Mark Twain who said, I've suffered many things in my life, um, you know, uh, most of which never happened or something along those lines. And it's just just sad if you get to the end of your life and most of what you suffered Only a couple of those things actually happened. It's sad. And I'd put it this way, there are some meetings that I have that I have 12 meetings before the meeting, I have the meeting and then I have seven after the meeting. That's a lot of meetings. You know which one actually happened? One. Do you know how much my psyche or my immune system went through? Like about 20. And the more you can lessen the meetings before the meetings and after the meetings and get yourself out of your head, you can start actually doing stuff with your hands, which is interesting he goes next to Nehemiah 6. He says this, they were all trying to frighten us thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed because if they can get in your head and Satan can get in your head, people can get in your head and you can get in your own head, they'll take your hands away and you won't be able to actually act out what God wants you to do. You gotta realize that fear is the fiercest just before the finish line. This was day 51 of 52 right before they hung the doors and the gates. When the last psychological ambush is leveled against you, don't stand down, stand strong. I love what Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. Just keep going. Some of you right now need to hear that word because you feel like you're going through hell. In fact, I had somebody in the last service just come up and they just said, I'm going through hell. They said those words before the service started. I was actually worshiping God in the second song and somebody came up to me while I was up here worshiping, and we were singing, Spirit of the Living God, and all of a sudden I hear somebody say, hey man, I'm going through hell. And I turned, and I was like, you are real. I, it's like, wow, this is in this room. This is really happening. And if you're going through, you just, you just keep going. It was awesome because in Nehemiah 6, right after that, he just prayed a simple prayer, now strengthen my hands. I love that prayer. It's one of my favorites in the Bible. Four words. 13, learn the discipline of whispering breath prayers to weaponize and galvanize your spirit against fear and fatigue. You're like, well, I don't know how to pray. You can pray that. God, strengthen my hands. God, give me strength to have this conversation. Lord, help me not to do what I'm about to do. Lord, hold me. Right now. Give me strength. These are prayers God listens to. And they were almost done, but for one thing, and if you read in Nehemiah 6.1, when the word came to the three stooges, these guys and the rest of the enemies that I had built the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to the time I had not set the doors and the gates. Those are actually gaps. Like I don't know anybody that moves into their house and there's no doors or windows. Like those are still gaps. And he, it was like, that completion is critical on day 51. And, and actually Nehemiah 7.1, it says, so after the wall had been rebuilt, I had the door set in place. I love that. And I thought, this is such a great point. You ain't done until they hang the dang doors. Don't cut deals or cut corners. You didn't come this far only to come this far. Finish, finish, hang the dang doors. Sometimes that's the hardest thing is just that last step. To follow God is to follow through. And what's cool is what happens after that, Nehemiah 6.15, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days when all of our enemies heard about it all the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence. It all switched around because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. We were afraid. We were losing our self-confidence. But because we pressed through and when we were going through hell, we just kept going and we resisted and we prayed these weaponized prayers, God strength in our hands. We didn't let them get in our heads. We just kept pressing through and we hung the dang gates and the doors. Everyone's like, oh, crap. That's what I want to be. Every morning when I wake up in the morning, I want the enemy to be like, oh, crap. He's up. He's on the move. He's afoot. He's astir. He's alive. Go get him. But I'm telling you, most of the time, if you complete the task, the enemy turns and, and just loses confidence, and he cowers. Instead of you being the coward and the coward, one that cowers away, he cowers and runs. Witness your opposition and obstacles cower away as you make the dream come true on your day 52 with the help of God. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, a hero is no braver than an ordinary man, but he is brave five minutes longer. And I don't know how many things that I've actually given up on day 49, 52, or God forbid day 51 of day 52, it was like so close. And I just couldn't take the resistance. And I bowed out and I buckled. And I'm just telling you how many of us here we're just at so close to the finish line and the ambush is intense and the assault is intense. Just stand up, bear up underneath it. Pray to God and hang the dang doors. I just, I look back at my life and I can honestly say there's, some of my greatest accomplishments came at the heels of me wanting to quit in the face of hardship. I I was thinking of one, in my junior year of college, I played uh, collegiate soccer, and um, I just, I was getting to a point where I wanted, I just didn't wanna play anymore, and I told the coach, like, I'm not doing this next year, I think it was, I was gonna complete the year, and I'm not gonna do it next year. And I gave some excuse, like I'm in ministry and I'm studying for ministry and this takes too much time and energy. I, I wanna be about you know, the father's business, sort of that kind of a thing. And it had nothing to do with us running suicides the day before in practice, right? <laughs> that was coincidental. And I remember it was outside chapel, chapel was done and I was walking by and he said, Jay, can you come into my office? His office was just outside of chapel. And I remember him pulling out his chair, bringing it in front of me and looking me in the eye and speaking. These words, I'll never forget what he said. He said, Jason, how you play soccer is how you'll do ministry. You're lying to yourself if you think differently. If you don't learn how to overcome obstacles on the field, what makes you think you'll overcome them in the church? If you think running suicides was hard today, wait until you face opposition in the church. You won't make it. But if you start learning to do hard things today, it'll prepare you to do hard things for the rest of your life. This is a defining moment, Jay. I have a feeling how you deal with this situation is how you're gonna face your future. Will you pay the price to pursue your passion, which was our model for our team, or will you quit when the things get difficult? This choice will define your life. Let me know tomorrow what you decide. Let me know tomorrow what you decide. Because everybody here, I can make you do it, but you can make a decision today to decide to be responsible and hang the dang doors in your life for a change. Every day we wake up with another chance to face a difficult challenge, to make a crucial choice to enact a necessary change. Will we do it or will we abdicate is to responsibility. God, pray that individually and collectively we would just become people that understand just this story hasn't changed. And we can look at a story from thousands of years ago like this and we just see the same dynamics of what trips us up and what takes us out, what breaks our spirit. And I pray that you just give us a heart that's stout-hearted, Lord, and strong. And whether it's micro level, which most of the time is just micro decisions we're making about how to sort of start revolutionary Activity or whether it's macro dreams you've put in our heart, God, I pray that we'll see them through and follow through as we follow you. Give us strength, God, by your spirit in our heart to take responsibility in the midst of our adversity and the resistance in our life. We pray this in your son, Jesus' name, amen, amen. You're dismissed, we'll see you next week.